0: Hey there. This is called Trump Caught in Perverted Video. <laughs>
1: I built this see through wall with all different kinds of studs, pipes, wires, as well as piles tape. So that
2: we can see. Folks, if there's one way you can describe what old Donnie is going through right old now, Donnie. it's that he's playing the worst game of whack-a-mole ever. You know the game where you gotta take them out and you gotta hit the moles and you score points but there's always they're always popping up and you can never get them all? That's what he's going through right now. As he faces scandal after scandal both political and legal and I want to get in to some breaking analysis showing not only is he in big trouble, not only is his desperate effort to declare a candidacy not going to work when it comes to getting him out of all of these investigations but while this is happening more and more data more and more analysis is confirming just how central he was to the defeat of his own party a few nights ago. But while this is breaking, the main course for this video is that old Donnie's business empire has been rocked to the core by a shocking investigation showing even more corruption at his company than we even imagined 24, 48 hours ago. And it forced Donald Trump to make drastic moves even for him. Let's start with some of the analysis, because I think it's important to realize that, again, why he's weak is because his political utility to the Republican Party isn't perceived as valuable anymore.
0: All right. want to bring in now NBC's Sahil Kapoor uh, to talk more about this. I, I want to start, Sahil, if we can, with some of your reporting. Um, I know that you looked at Trump's kind of impact um, on the, the, the midterms um, and how things went. What did you find? Yasmin, it's unlike anything we've seen before in modern times. This election, the 2022 election, amazingly turned out to be as much a rejection of a defeated former president who still continues to dominate his party as it was a rejection of, of a current Uh, incumbent president uh, Joe Biden, who is not popular in most swing states. But what we found in our exit polls nationally and across swing states was that voters uh, voted at almost a similar rate to reject Republican candidates because of Donald Trump than they did with uh, Joe Biden, you know, to vote against Democrats. 32% said their vote was to oppose Joe Biden. 23% said their vote was to oppose uh, Donald Trump. And, of course, you can guess how they voted. Percent for Democrats. That should previous term. The party out of power ended up, uh, you know, uh, winning independence by double digits. This time, the party in power narrowly won in key swing states like Arizona and Pennsylvania. We also found our exit polls showed uh, voters voted against the Republican candidates there, who lost in large part to show their opposition to Donald Trump. Both of those candidates were handpicked uh, by Donald Trump, and of course, in the House. There are crucial races that Republicans would have coasted to, but the members there had voted to impeach Donald Trump and were defeated in primaries by Republicans who went on to lose to Democrats. That includes Washington's 3rd District, Jamie Herrera-Butler. The Republican who beat her just lost to the Democrat, Marie Perez. Michigan's 3rd District, Peter Meyer, voted to impeach Donald Trump, he lost, uh, or uh, the Republican John Gibbs, who defeated him, lost to the Democrat Hillary Clinton. So you add it all up, and a number of Republican strategists I've talked to say they had a real Trump problem here. The question is what the party
2: does about it. So that's just yet more analysis, guys. We're getting more and more each hour, not even daily, hourly now, just confirming that he was a drag. It wasn't as if Donald Trump was neutral. It wasn't as if he had no effect. It's that he was an active drag on his party, which is to say that wherever he didn't go, they probably performed a little bit better. And if we're being honest, if he would have shut himself away in Mar-a-Lago or at his golf club or wherever and just stayed silent... The Republicans would have done better. Would they have won? We don't know. That's hard to say, you know, but I think it's safe to say that a lot of these close races in swing states where people were disgusted by Donald Trump, having him everywhere all the time, you know, all, on all these rallies and whatnot, reminded people of how awful he is. And this is why people are turning against him. Here's some breaking analysis, including some really interesting focus group footage of a top Republican pollster showing not only that Donald Trump was a central reason for the party's failure, but how his own core base, people who loved him dearly and remained loyal to him the whole way through are ready to ditch him for the, un- for the new young guy, Ron DeSantis.
3: To get to the Trump aspect of this, because I know you just did a focus group this weekend with people about who they prefer, but on the polling, I think people do not trust polls right now. They you did shouldn't. not trust them after 2016, but how do you fix it? I don't.
4: You don't. You, you, the you polling is irrelevant. You is guys spend way too much time focused on who's going to win and lose and trying to predict that. Isn't that what <laughs> you do from the I, know, no, 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 pollster. I don't do that. I don't do that. I haven't worked in a, in a political campaign in more than a decade. I use the numbers that were given to me by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee and no matter what they say Frank, now, how can you say that your tweet just but said before I predict this person is this yes, group of based this group on of their polling, okay. not but my also, polling then
3: here's my question on that which is because this is correct people are saying well the media said this pundits said this Democrats also thought they were not going to fare very well on Tuesday night now they're obviously happy that they did but they were bracing for losses how did their pollsters fix this? Is there any point in polling essentially anymore if you can't get it right? What
4: mm-hmm. a great lesson to the media! Very good question. Stop focusing on the who's up and who's down, and start trying to understand why. Give us insight. Give us information that we can use. People watch this show because they're more informed by giving you their 10 or 15 or 30 minutes. They watch because they really care about what's going on and they want to stay up-to-date on all the events that are important. They're not asking you to project the future. They want to fully and completely understand the present. So let's go back to using polling for what it was meant to do. Insights, information, knowledge, and if you're lucky, wisdom. But so you've got, you you got to show that focus group because that's what's we really do,
3: important. We do, because you spoke to these. These are Trump voters. Yes, all of them. And here's what they think about what they want 2024 to look like.
1: But to me, he's a much more polished version of Trump. He's willing to kind of fight back and willing yes. to um, go after it, but he does it in a way that he doesn't degrade do or um, say things that are
4: just off-putting. That's talking, talking about, about- DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and, and almost every one of them, they all voted for Trump two years ago, and almost all of them would vote for DeSantis today. They appreciate what Trump did. They appreciate his agenda, but they don't appreciate him as a person, and they're actually worn out with him as a person, and I believe that if Trump goes ahead and announces tomorrow, he doesn't understand the world that has been created over the last week. And Trump's vicious, brutal attacks, not just of DeSantis, but also of the uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, the Republicans are beginning to say, okay, enough already. We insulted.
2: That's terrible news for Trump. Because again, as we get into some of the legal issues, guys, you have to remember, he doesn't have any protection from the White House anymore. He could try to get back in there. That's the only thing that protects him. But he can't get back into the White House if he loses control of his own party. That's devastating for Trump because it shows that even the people that like him don't want him around anymore. And the people that hate him certainly don't want him around. And again, this gets to the legal issues. Because again... He's trying to run for office, and it's not working for him. And while this is happening, we're going to segue right into it. His hotel system just got hit with a gargantuan bomb that's forced him, again, to make drastic moves.
3: My sense is that it won't have any impact on the department's work. The Attorney General has been very clear about the path he follows in prosecutions. It's perhaps too slow for many Americans and I think difficult to appreciate why the process takes so long unless you've ever been a prosecutor, in which case I can tell you there are just a lot of delays built into the process, time it takes for information to be returned pursuant to a subpoena that seems to add 30 and 60 days to an investigation every time you turn around. But that frustration with timing aside, Merrick Garland has been very clear that in terms of the process, that he will follow the facts wherever they lead. And that means that a former president cannot hide behind a candidacy to reclaim the presidency in an effort to avoid the same sort of accountability that any other American who's being investigated for similar facts would face. And when it comes to Mar-a-Lago, I think the January 6th case is more difficult. The Mar-a-Lago case is simpler. The evidence is uh, a little bit more Developed, and that evidence strongly suggests that DOJ will seriously consider indicting the former president.
2: And so we bring you Joyce there again, one of my favorites. And she was one of the people commenting on this hotel story. But I really need to reiterate that: that Donald Trump's plan isn't gonna work. It's not. Just declaring two years out from a presidential election, more than a year out from even the primary starting is not going to protect you. That's an abuse of the idea that you can't be investigated during an election. No one's going to buy that. And this is where the hotel stuff comes in. Because Donald Trump's hotels just got hit with a massive report. And it's all based on the fact that he was abusing his power when he was president by using these hotels to get all of these shady foreign governments to spend a whack of money unaccountably to enrich himself while they were making deals with the Trump government with the Trump-headed government, and it notes here, Wow, House Oversight Committee just put out a report concluding that Trump got a lot of money from foreign governments through the Trump Hotel than previously reported, and received tens of thousands of dollars from GOP lobbyists operating illegally for those countries. Major Trump grift, and it notes here, might be hard to read, so I'll read it out. The newly obtained documents, including hotel ledgers, reveal that foreign governments, including the governments of Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Qatar... The UAE, Turkey, and the People's Republic of China spent more money than previously known at the Trump Hotel and did so at sensitive times for those countries' relationships with the United States. Documents revealed that during the same time periods they were seeking to influence the American foreign policy, these six nations and affiliated entities made payments totaling more than $750,000 to Mr. Trump's hotel, renting rooms for up to 10k a night. Well-connected Republican lobbyists working on behalf of these countries, some operating illegally without reg- registering as foreign agents spent tens of thousands of dollars more at Trump Hotel during the same periods. And this is the one of the reasons this hotel was shut down. You remember, this is the Trump International Hotel in DC. Trump shut it down and then sold his leasing rights to another company. So it is no longer a Trump Hotel. And there was a whole bunch of reasons why Trump shuttered it. Of course, because he wasn't in Washington anymore. Maybe he felt he couldn't run it. A big one is that despite all of this BS, the hotel was never profitable. There was one year where technically it made slightly more than it spent, but when you add in the cost of loans, it was still in the negative. Trump could never make this hotel profitable during his entire time as president. And so he shuttered it. But honestly, I think one of the reasons he was forced to close this hotel down is because it was a crime scene for his political crimes, for the actions he and his family undertook when he was in office. Renting rooms like this. Clearly, as Joyce Vance noted, she noted, the the last lady I quoted, she said, you know, this is why we have the Emoluments Clause. It's in the Constitution. That's why it's there. To prevent presidents and other high office holders from using their existing businesses to enrich themselves when they're in office, which is exactly what this report says Trump did. So when you wonder why he's flailing right now, it's because in business, in politics, in the legal system, the whack-a-mole game is defeated. And he shuttered businesses and tried to save himself, but nothing's worked so far. And I don't think anything's going to work.
1: If you want to be healthier,
5: you've got to get cachava.
2: I started cachava a month ago because I was
0: eating poorly and I knew I could do better.
5: I'm really conscious about my nutrition
0: and cachava makes my life so much easier.
4: I love how I get all these great superfoods that would be impossible to gather myself.
0: Cachava is my secret.
2: Well, that wasn't
0: the P tape.
2: (coughs) He was even more corrupt than we thought. No wonder they had to dump this hotel after they lost. PERVERTED Let's see, David Roth, the Untold Story of the American Resistance to Save Our Country 16 hours ago. (coughs) Legal updates, stream six hours ago, sounds good.
5: The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals sets oral argument in the expedited appeal filed by the Department of Justice in the case involving Donald Trump stealing thousands of government records and then running to Judge Eileen Cannon, who improperly asserted equitable jurisdiction, and then the Department of Justice got the 100 classified records returned, but now it's the appeal regarding all the other records. Well, the Court of Appeals says, put up or shut up, let's hear this case on November 22nd. I think that's good news and it shows that Judge Eileen Cannon is going to be overruled. But meanwhile, Popat, the special master proceeding is continuing in earnest before Raymond Deary where the Department of Justice and Trump just recently responded to five questions posed by Raymond Deary and Trump's responses are some of the most absurd things. And it would be funny if this person wasn't so dangerous and didn't Steal our top secret records. Also, MAGA extremist and the chair of the Arizona Republican Party loses her emergency application to the Supreme Court, and uh, she must turn over her T-Mobile phone records to the January 6th Committee. You know who I'm talking about, right? Uh, Popa Kelly Ward. Meanwhile, more witnesses. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you going to do a, a Kelly Ward impression? MAGA extremists who don't want to turn over their records. So I. You got prom- to hope- you got
1: to promise me you got to do a Kelly Ward impression again today.
5: Ultra mega! Ultra mega! (laughs) More witnesses are called to the stand in the Trump Organization criminal trial, where the Trump Organization is a criminal defendant in a Manhattan trial. And the former Trump Organization chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, took the stand earlier in the week, and he laid out Trump and the Trump Organization. He did what he said he was going to do when he took the plea agreement where he pled guilty to to 15 felony counts uh, in exchange for not having to serve 15 years in prison and only serve 100 days incarcerated. Also, the Department of Justice has informed the federal judge overseeing a case where the search warrant or search warrant had been executed on Rudy Giuliani's premises that the Department of Justice is not going to be prosecuting Rudy Giuliani for his foreign lobbying activity. It doesn't mean Giuliani's off the hook for all of the other criminal conduct he engaged in, but you and I will discuss what this means and how you and I feel about it and how it makes us feel about the Department of Justice. And finally, Trump files a completely deranged appeal with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In that lawsuit, he filed against Twitter. Remember, he first filed it in Florida, which he shouldn't have, and then it got moved to San Francisco, Then it was dismissed by the federal judge there. But in this new appeal, Trump compares himself to Galileo like you can't make this stuff up. This is the midweek edition of Legal AF. Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who was formerly 30 years at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, so has great insight into the uh, DAs there and prosecutors there. Well, she's out on a trial. So you get Michael Popak and Ben Micellis. Michael Popak, how are you? Don't adjust your knobs.
1: We just have Ben, the weekend anchor and co-founder of Legal AF sitting in for Karen who is trying a case because as we've always said, that's what we bring to the table. We actually are lawyers who try cases and have clients and and that's our perspective. We miss Karen today. She'll bring her insight into all things Manhattan DA and prosecutorial world when she returns hopefully next week um, right in time for
5: Thanksgiving. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great. And I'm doing better knowing that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has finally set oral argument quickly, right? in the expedited appeal that was filed by the Department of Justice regarding Judge Eileen Cannon, the Trump appointee in the Southern District of Florida, who on September 5th found that she had equitable jurisdiction, which is like the rarest thing for a judge to possibly find that they could exercise jurisdiction. Equitable jurisdiction basically means there's no law that says the judge should ever get involved, but because the conduct is just so outrageous by the government or an entity that a judge says, you know what, for the purpose of saving equity here, for equity's sake, I gotta jump in. And we've always talked about that. The factors that you have to assess as a judge, like the main one being, did the government engage in a callous disregard for the rights of the person they're investigating? Like, even Judge Eileen Cannon didn't make that finding, but she said, Oh, because the reputation of Donald Trump is going to be hurt, let's start this whole special master process. Well, the Department of Justice has already got back the 100 classified records because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals found that Eileen Cannon shouldn't have asserted equitable jurisdiction regarding those records. It's basically the same argument that the Department of Justice makes why the 11,000 or so other records before the special master uh, should not be subject to this uh, process before a special master that canon should never have asserted equitable jurisdiction. I've been saying this for a very long time that, um, my view was by late November, early December, the Court of Appeals is gonna say canon should never have asserted equitable jurisdiction and this whole special master process will be stopped. But Popak, there's still a lot of action going on in the special master process despite the fact that oral argument on the appeal is gonna take place on November 22nd, which may make 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 the special master's role completely moot. And the special master set a hearing for December 1. So what's going on with the special master?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Department of Justice made a... Thanks, Ben. The Department of Justice made a calculated decision not to go through the trouble of asking this new three-judge panel we don't know who they are yet, three-judge panel at the 11th Circuit to issue a stay to stop Judge uh, Deary, the special master, from reviewing the documents because they want to double-track this. Because if they weren't certain when they filed and asked for expedited appeal and an expedited oral argument that they'd actually get it, and they didn't want to have anything really delaying, so they let it, they let it be a parallel track. Deary... You you continue with what you're doing now that we got the hundred classified documents back. But let's keep that on a very fast track, which, of course, Judge Cannon, who's in the back pocket of Donald Trump, slowed down considerably and allowed um, and gave Trump another gift of saying that his work needed to be done by middle of December. And, and, the, and then the Department of Justice said, look, we got a great win in our first appeal to the 11th Circuit and there, and let's do it all again with the special uh, the special fast track appeal with a new panel and I totally agree with you I'd be, I really would be shocked if even a new three judge panel of the 11th circuit found that Eileen Cannon properly exercised equitable jurisdiction or even had it in this case and should have set up a special master process in order to uh, funnel all of these and filter all of these documents that were obtained in the search warrant uh, through. I think it comes Da- crashing down, the curtain comes crashing down on Cannon's special master scheme, maybe by just after Thanksgiving, beginning of December, probably a couple of weeks before um, Ray Deary, God bless his soul, is done with his work. Now, look, he's got a job to do in the meantime. He's got a team of people and some former ex-judges that are helping him, and he's trying to pick through all of the legal issues. So, People might be saying, why are they even bothering doing all that? Because there's no stay. And unless there's a stay of a court, you got to comply unless and until a higher authority tells you to stop. And so the, the last issue, everybody may recall from about three or four podcasts ago that you and I did, Ben, the last issue was somehow Trump and the Department of Justice actually agreed on something. And they agreed that there were five open questions. Just five open questions that needed to be answered and briefed in order for Deary to do his job. And so Deary set a briefing schedule. Submit your briefs about these five open issues. And when you read them, I'll let you take Trump. I'll do, Let me do Department of Justice. The five open issues which are addressed in both briefs basically come down to can Donald Trump convert presidential documents into personal documents either before leaving office or as an ex-president? Yes or no? Um, and, you know, the answer the Department of Justice gave on that one two, whether personal documents can ever be covered by executive privilege, because doesn't the assertion of exec- executive privilege mean fundamentally that the documents are not personal? And then and then the last one, I mean, there's five of them, but they're, I'm grouping them together. The last one is, does Donald Trump have to file a declaration if he's got any issues or bones to pick about the inventory that the Department of Justice used in collecting the documents? Yes or no? You may recall that Judge Deary wanted an early declaration affidavit from, from, from Trump with a short deadline. And Cannon jumped in and said, no, no, that's not side of your scope as big. I didn't ask you to do that as special master. Don't require Donald Trump to issue an affidavit under oath. We wouldn't want that. So, you know, skip that part. But now they've, you know, it's an issue that's being um, briefed in front of, um, in front of the, uh, special master. And, you know, the, the, if you read this really elegantly, actually I circulated it at my law firm, because it's really an example of amazing uh, writing, efficient, elegant writing by the Department of Justice in 20 pages, which is really small for a brief. They nailed every point and they took on the major attack that Donald, the major case that Donald Trump tries to rely on, which you and I anticipated months ago and talked about, which is the, the judicial watch case involving Bill Clinton recording on a recorder his thoughts and dreams and hopes that he was going to use for a future book when he left office and literally kept in a sock drawer, whether that was a presidential record or was always meant to be personal and private to him. That's what the case is about. That and some other kind of uh, very, very esoteric issues about the uh, National Archive and who makes the initial determination on designation of presidential records, but but the uh, Trump group jumps up and down and says, judicial watch case, that's a great case for us. And I think the Department of Justice did a great job dismantling that in 20 pages or less and to tell the, uh, the Ray Deary um, that he should go forward, finish his work, and this is how he should resolve the ex- the related, the um, the um, leftover executive privilege issues. The other thing, Ben, that you and I talked about off off uh, line in getting prepared for today is how little about how little a population of documents we're actually still talking about. And the Department of Justice spent some of their time in their brief reminding uh, the special master that out of 3,000 documents, not pages, but documents, there's only one document of that that Donald Trump is trying to apply uh, attorney-client privilege to. And there's only 121 documents that he's trying to apply this executive privilege to. So, So give me... Give me the 2,900 plus other documents and send them over like the 100 classified and let us do our job as an investigative and prosecutorial agency with a live criminal investigation.
5: What did you think about Trump's filing, Ben? Trump's filing was the most absurd and insane thing ever, but I say that about every one of his filings. (laughs) What Trump argued in his filing is that the way he designated government records as personal was by packing them and sending them to Mar-a-Lago. That that's how you do it. He doesn't have to write it down and that he can convert any government record that he wants to convert into a personal record and nobody can question him merely by the fact that he packed them and shipped them. That's that's what does it in his books, and that's what he claims the judicial watch case, the Bill Clinton socks case says. Well, that case is nothing like that at all. I'll talk about that case in one second, but literally, this is what his brief says. You can't make this up. It says, rather, Trump was authorized to and did, in fact, designate the seized materials as personal records while he served as president. Now, it goes on to explain, well, how'd he do it? Did you tell the National Archives? Did you? make notice of it. How did you do it? Goes this. President Trump was still serving his term in office when the documents at issue were packed, transported, and delivered to his residence in Palm Beach, Florida. Thus, when he made a designation decision, he was president of the United States. Like, you can't get more of a non sequitur than that because he packed it and sent it. That's how it all of a sudden becomes a a personal record. And this judicial watch case that Donald Trump cites, and this is what the Department of Justice laid out in their brief, this group by Tom Finton, who's not a lawyer, who basically acts like he's a lawyer, he filed a case against the National Archives, alleging these issues about the Clinton presidency. Did he file it during the Clinton presidency? No. The lawsuit was from 2012 about the Clinton presidency. And the issue was, as you mentioned, Popak, audio recordings of Clinton's personal autobiography, not government records or stealing records. And the archives had already agreed that those records were personal records. And what that stands for also is that it is the archives who could basically make that determination. And nor does that statement, nor does that case stand for the proposition that someone can just illegally or unlawfully wave a magic wand or telepathically turn government records into personal records. Like there so, are. Wait,
1: d- it also, it, it also presupposes that the National Archive got a complete inventory of everything from the office in, in order to make that determination. How do they do that if all the boxes went out the door directly to Mar-a-Lago and never got to the National Archive? Isn't that the point of the entire yeah. case? And
5: the Sox case stands for the proposition that you can't <laughs> bring a random dude like Finton or Dudette or whoever, cannot bring a private lawsuit Against the National Archives. That, that That's what it stands for. To compel someone like Clinton to have designated it differently where the archives agrees with the designation. Like, that, it stands for that proposition. That, that's what the Sox case, the Sox case, the Sox case. And by the way, do you know Judge Amy Berman Jackson was the judge in the Sox case? And she's oh, yeah. the judge who's been sentencing all of the MAGA <laughs> extremists to, like... I, I lo- <laughs>
1: I love love that you call it the Sox kid, because Clinton had a cat named Sox in the White House.
5: That's what he says, you know, because (laughs) the argument was that the audio recordings of Clinton's autobiography were kept in a drawer where he kept his socks. So that's why (laughs) But they they, they latch on to these like names, you know, like Strike Force Sock Case, you know, you know, George Ministry of Truth, (laughs) you know, Chinese Ministry. That's where that's where they kept it. They kept it at a Chinese restaurant slash bowling alley. It's like, what are you talking about? But. So there'll be a hearing before Deary, the special master, on December 1st. He's going to look at these briefings. Popak, he's definitely going to return the documents that are not in dispute to the Department of Justice. Trump and his lawyers are going to get excoriated at this hearing. I think secretly Trump's lawyers hope that the 11th Circuit just ends this before they have to go in front of Deary. And I think the Department of Justice strategically did that surgical move where they got the classified records back and let the rest of it kind of play out with Deary, but making at least a good faith attempt to say we should have it because Trump's done himself no favors in this process by making assertions like the one I just claimed, where he basically admits to stealing the records, which could be used in a criminal prosecution.
1: Can't you picture Merrick Garland or whoever the lead prosecutor is in the case? I know they're reporting to him just saying, because this, this is what prosecutors do, they let people out in order to continue to surveil them and watch them and listen to them. They get more information than if they shut down the person. You know they're just sitting in their offices going, let him talk, let him talk, let him tweet, let him rally, let him announce for the presidency, because he has said, be- between the last time you and I reported on this, and now, in no less than six circumstances, has President Trump, ex-President Trump, uh, implicated himself in uh, the crime. Eventually, it gets out of Deary's hands, it gets out of Cannon's hands, we'll never have to hear about her again in this case, and out of the 11th Circuit hands, and it goes back to being a prosecution of President, ex-President Trump by the Department of Justice, and all these statements that he's been making around it all implicate him, and all implicate him and put him squarely in the crosshairs now that the midterms are over.
5: Absolutely. And the fact that he announced that he's running for uh, whatever he thinks the office is, I think he thinks it's king or emperor and he calls President G. King. What's the weirdest announcement in the world? That's not going to immunize him from anything. As you get closer to the election, there are those weird Department of Justice rules that require approval before uh, an elections, but that's not going to be at issue with respect to anything. Look, any we never
1: had, we never had a president um lead an insurrection. We never had a president become impeached twice and f- and so we're ne- so we can't look back at history and say historically the department of justice doesn't prosecute presidents. Right, because presidents don't do the things or ex presidents don't do the things that this guy did. So, you know, th- there's no playbook for this. This is going to have to be sober assessment and judgment um by Merrick Garland ultimately about whether there is enough e- evidence to prosecute somebody. We're going to talk later in this podcast about a mature decision made by the Department of Justice not to prosecute somebody. So these are this is why they get paid the big bucks. They make these decisions. They're the only ones that make this decision. If they make the right decision, it's theirs. If they make the wrong decision, it's theirs. There's nothing anybody you and I can't do a thing about it. We can't run into court and make Merrick Garland prosecute Donald Trump. That buck stops with Merrick Garland.
5: Let's talk about this uh, Kelly Ward emergency application that she filed with the United States Supreme Court to try to block turning over her T-Mobile records. The January 6th committee subpoenaed her testimony. She pled the fifth. So then they're like, all right, we need your phone records then. And we're just talking about the metadata, not the actual messages themselves. Like, Uh, who was, who made the call, who received the call, the length of the call, and it was narrowly tailored. She made the argument in Arizona District Court that under the First Amendment it violates freedom of association for the government to pry into her political communications as the chair of the Arizona Republican Party. Um, Whether you analyze that under a strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny type of standard or even an intermediary scrutiny for kind of First Amendment analysis, um, all of the courts, the District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a 2-1 decision, found that there was a compelling government interest and that the subpoena was narrowly tailored and the compelling government interest is there was an insurrection. Uh, the Supreme Court received an emergency application through Judge Alina uh, Kagan, um, Elena Kagan, over uh, who was an Obama appointee. Judge Kagan, and so Judge Kagan, though granted the temporary stay, and blocked the January sixth committee from a for a very short period of time of getting the records pending review of the Supreme Court. And Popok, you and I on the weekend show, we just said, look, it, Judge Kagan's an Obama appointee. This is just the process the Supreme Court has gone through and utilized on these insurrection and Trump cases. They've so far almost all, whether you're an Obama appointee, a Trump appointee, yeah. a Reagan appointee, whoever, whoever the appointee was, a Bush appointee, um, they will the Supreme Court justices will grant a temporary stay referred to the court what the court and Kagan
1: and Kagan hates the shadow docket she 's been public about it, so it should have been no it should have been no surprise that she wasn 't going to participate in a shadow docket. She wanted full briefing she wanted it referred over to the entire uh, nine members, and so we got some Intel. As to who would have, who would have agreed to stay the, the action and grant the appeal. We'll talk about that because it was a seven, basically a seven to two decision. And we're going to have to talk, unfortunately, about why is Clarence Thomas sitting on anything related to Jan Six, insurrectionists, and Arizona in particular, since it's already become to light through the Jan Six committee and otherwise, that Ginny Thomas, his wife, was part of the fake elector scheme, was pushing the fake elector scheme in Arizona. Kelly Ward was one of the fake electors, or would have been one of the fake electors. And so why is Clarence Thomas sitting in specifically on Arizona, Jan 6th, insurrectionist stuff? He shouldn't be. But he is. And we know he is, because he dissented, along with Alito, in the 7-2 decision by the Supreme Court to force Kelly Ward to turn over or, or allow the T-Mobile to turn over her, basically her phone bills. You said metadata and you, you accurately described what it would be on it. It's like the old phone bill. Who'd you call duration and the like? It's not text messages or, or anything else. But, but Gen 6 has, you know, thousands and thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that they will fit this into like a jigsaw puzzle to show her involvement as you said she claimed the first amendment was being violated the freedom of association was being violated uh, and this also this decision i think um w- will also kill any suggestion by trump in his recent filing that the uh, to stop the jan 6 committee subpoena of him that the jan 6 committee doesn't have um isn't properly constituted isn't properly authorized isn't bipartisan and therefore wasn't um, empowered to issue the subpoena. I mean, the, the Supreme Court time and time again has looked at the powers of the Jan Six Committee uh, and allowed them to get records, to get testimony uh, almost every time, almost every time. So, you know, look, all I got to say about Arizona, um, besides, besides the ruling that you outlined, is three words, Governor Katie Hobbs. I mean, I mean, this is, this is that state. Friend of the pod, friend of my brother's pod. She appeared on your show, right? Didn't Katie Hobbs mm-hmm. appear on your show? Yeah. She's now the governor of the state. She was the secretary of state that held the line against all of the crazies, all of the election deniers. Nobody was under more pressure in the state of Arizona than her. And she's now the governor. What does that tell you about that state? You know, a state that that took out the speaker, speaker of the house, because he he uh, properly testified to the Jan. Six committee. So uh, this doesn't this this bodes terribly for Kelly Ward. But I think it also signals that Donald Trump's continued arguments and attacking the jurisdiction of the Jan. Six committee against him is a, is a dead loser. He'll pick up two votes: Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas. But the rest of the adults on this issue seem to be unified that JAN 6 committee is doing a proper legislative or investigative function and people need to cooperate with them
5: couldn't agree more with you Popak there and you mentioned Clarence Thomas still ruled was in the dissent and said that uh, he would have not only just heard oral argument, but he likely would have quashed the subpoena and would not have let the January 6th committee issue a subpoena. And we've talked about it here on the Midas Touch Network, 28 U.S. Code Section 455, disqualification of justices and judge, make it very clear that a judge must disqualify themselves for a number of reasons, including when their spouse could have an interest in the case or when they have an interest in the case through a spouse being in public. it's not a close call.
1: So if he was a federal judge, if he was a non-Supreme Court justice, just a run-of-the-mill federal judge or appellate judge below the Supreme Court, he'd have to abide by that
5: by that statute you just read, right, Ben? Yeah, and frankly, as a Supreme, you know, the, the issue is this. Who would you... He still would have to abide by it now, but why there's no accountability is because they're the highest authority you can appeal to. So if a lower court judge didn't follow the disqualification, you would eventually appeal to the United States Supreme Court, you know, which could, you know, grand cert and, and hear it, or you would appeal to, if it happened in a district court, you would appeal to the circuit court. If it happened in the circuit court, you could appeal to an unbanked panel of the circuit court. And if it happened and no one agreed with you there, you go to the Supreme Court. All these cases in disqualification, right, are circuit court cases or Supreme Court cases that address the issue. And there was that Supreme Court case in the past, I think it was 10 years or so. That's one of the foremost kind of authorities on these disqualifications cases involved. I think it was like a judge in West Virginia or, or a state nearby where one of the litigants contributed millions of dollars to the election. And that was the judge who had overseen uh, the appeals and then overruled uh, the, the district court judgment or the, the lower court judgment in favor of the person who had donated to them, but that gets appealed all the way to the Supreme court. But here you don't have that. It's absurd. You know, It's absurd. It's illegal. It's unlawful. And then people go, well, what can we do about it? I mean, hypothetically could a Supreme court justice be impeached? Sure. But is that going to happen? It's just not going to happen. You know, should we expand the Supreme Court? You know, yes. Do we need to elect more Democrats to to do that? Yes. And it's not a both sides issue. You know, and I and I did another hit recently on these student debt cancellation cases as well. And I'm like, it's not a both side issue. You got you got Biden who has implemented the program and you've got the republicans the federalist society and their judges all republicans all right wing who have done everything they can to deliver benefits for the billionaires and block student debt cancellation program. this isn't a both side issue there's is one side that's engaged in the misconduct here and so there's no other way of putting it popoc that's the law Clarence Thomas should not have been heard, but you know that is that that's that's the system you know you got presidents who nominate um these uh, federal uh, justices and and the Senate confirms
1: he chief- Chief Justice Roberts has no control over this, but uh if I was a fly on the wall in his chambers whenever he sees that um that uh Thomas continues to participate in these cases and doesn't voluntarily recuse himself i'm sure he slaps his forehead he'd rather not he would rather not continue to have shame and um approbation brought down on the us supreme court by having Clarence Thomas's not only appearance of impropriety but impropriety um you know just uh is splashed all over the rest of the Supreme Court in its legitimacy. He'd rather not. The problem is, Ben, as you pointed out, even the Chief Justice doesn't have the power and the authority. Now, he could do one thing, and we'll, we'll talk about it over the course of the year. You know, the, the Chief Justice could Imp, you know, implement and impose, I believe, a rule of ethics or, or, or rules of professional responsibility applicable to the nine members of the Supreme Court. He just never does it. He says in his annual, you know, we get to hear from Roberts once a year about the state of the bench, and he always says, we got this. We'll take care of it. We clean our own house. We take care of our own. We take our, you know, we'll do, in, we'll, we'll do it self, self-discipline. self well, It's not working. It's not working, and it makes the Supreme Court look to everybody else to be illegitimate.
5: Yeah. What Roberts could also do is he could, on a opinion like that, he could just put, and the Chief Justice respectfully requested that Clarence Thomas recuse <laughs> based on the conflict. And, and, uh, the request was denied. I mean, what does that do in theory? Nothing, yeah. but at least you can let your, you know, your voice be heard here. Speaking about letting their voice be heard, Alan Weisselberg reluctantly, his voice, his voice is being heard. I guess you could say he would went in there kicking and screaming after agreeing to a uh, plea deal for pleading guilty to 15 felony counts. I mean, the the case in New York involves improper benefits being given to executives at the Trump organizations, which weren't being uh, reported as taxable income. And Alan Weisselberg was among many of the executives who got these benefits, which were not taxed as income as they um, should have been. And Alan Weisselberg previously, pled guilty. His sentencing has been held over pending his testimony. So he testified for the first time on Tuesday. And his testimony so far has lived up to what he was supposed to testify to. Trump was aware of the pro, of, of what was going on. The controller, that guy Jeff McConaughey was aware or should have been aware. And they were engaged in illegal conduct. I mean, he just basically said it kind of right away. He said to testify again on Thursday. Popak, what did you think about his testimony?
1: i think that even though he came through with the fundamental admission that he knew that he was committing tax fraud and he does and he believes that people at the higher level must have known that too is sort of where he's left off with his testimony at least at the con the controller level which is another uh that's a person who sits next the chief financial officer the controller though testified that I don't really understand tax law. That's not my job. And I left it to Alan Weisselberg. Alan Weisselberg confessed that he committed tax fraud because he said he even hid the fact that he was getting a free apartment being paid for directly out of Donald Trump's bank account every month. I mean, with there's checks as evidence signed Donald J. Trump um to his um to his landlord. Um, over the course of the year, which which total about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year when you add up like the car and the Utilities and the apartment in New York to live near Trump Tower, whatever it was um, He said um, he hid that weisselberg said he hid it from Mazers the outside auditing firm Who also did his personal taxes? So, you know, he's in it up to his elbows My problem with some of what was revealed on the stand is is as follows, but I don't know if you caught this one, he's still on the payroll of the Trump organization. He's getting paid six hundred and forty thousand dollars a year to stay home. Secondly, he's waiting on. He had to admit this, and 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 good on the department, the uh, Manhattan DA's office for bringing this out to show a potential bias here and a potential witness tampering here by the Trump organization, who's who of course is the main the main uh, defendant here, because Alan Weisselberg testified that he's waiting. I guess in January on a $500,000 yearly bonus that he's gotten year after year and they and the prosecutors asked him well, well, when do you get that paid? He goes, that would be probably in the new year. And he said, well, are you expecting to get it? And he said, I hope so. And they said, well, who's responsible? Who makes the decision as to whether you get it or not? And he said, Eric Trump, who runs the organization and has since 2017. So this guy, not only is he still getting paid on the payroll up to $700,000, he's waiting like a pork chop being dangled in front of him, a big fat carrot by the Trump organization. In other words, yeah, I get that you're going to have to testify truthfully. But if you overdo it, right, if you go out of your way, that $500,000 bonus is going out the window. I mean, that's the signal that I'm seeing. And McConaughey's got the same thing. He's sitting home with a half a million dollars a year, getting continued to be paid by the Trump organization. The other thing that reporting um, of the trial uh, has brought out is that uh, Weisselberg is being prepped, not just by the Manhattan D- DA's office, but he's sitting regularly with the Trump organization lawyers to prepare for his testimony. I mean, this is completely, uh, unheard of. You've got the key witness for the government, because they can't do anything to stop him, I guess, is meeting regularly with the Trump organization so they learn what his testimonies could be and they can help shape it. Have you ever heard of such a thing, Ben? No. He's getting paid. He's waiting on a half a million dollars. If he's a if he's a good boy and Donald can, you know, this is the guy that on the day he made his deal, you know, and we were like, yes, justice will be served is the same day Donald Trump and the Trump organization threw him a birthday party in the Trump Tower.
5: You know, he says in his testimony about that, that he regretted that, that it was his son who threw it for him. And there wasn't a lot of people and it was just a birthday cake. But, you know, it was like
1: it was like the announcement that Trump's running
5: for office. Exactly. <laughs> well, the, the Trump running for office was uh, was definitely more of a funeral than a. Uh, <laughs> oh, totally. Than a, than a birthday. Oh. That was one of the weirdest things I've I've ever seen. But no, Popak, there's nothing normal about this trial. But but we shouldn't lose track of what the case, what this case is about. And so far, I don't know if you agree. Like all the elements have been hit. Right? Yeah. He said he committed a crime. <laughs> he he said that uh, that the higher ups were aware of it. One of the jury instructions is going to be, you should also look at if one of the sides had an opportunity to bring a witness in and that witness was not brought in, you can infer for yourself that there's something that they may be hiding. I think that's an important jury instruction here that the department of that here, the New York uh, Manhattan DA's office is going to point out. They're going to say, look. They had the opportunity to bring Trump in, and he could have rebutted any of these things that you heard, and you heard it from all of these people's mouths directly. Here's the evidence that we have. Here's the checks. Like, it's a very technical case when you think about it. It's not like an emotional case. It's like, here are the checks, here are the people confirming it, and they're not going to put Trump on to rebut it. Like, boom. Like, that's it. Like, the the, the, the Trump organization is going to be found guilty
1: It's a smaller case than anybody would have liked. I know that our co-anchor, it it drives her batty um, and really gets her upset when we talk about it, that her former office brought such a small case of just, you know, basically a one point six million dollar fine and a criminal conviction against the Trump organization for these these tax issues but again we're back to prosecutorial discretion this is you know you you have to try the case that you have not the case that you wish you had and the case that obviously the Manhattan DA's office thinks they had was and the and a case that they could win with Weisselberg um, flipping basically flipping is this case that we're now watching proceed in real time in a courtroom down in lower Manhattan and uh you're right he'll take the stand again tomorrow we'll report on more of that on the weekend edition and and some people might say well this isn't the case we wanted but but again we have to take these one at a time there's so many criminal charges and so many things that trump and his family did wrong you just have to pick them off one at a time so if this if this one sticks it'll be a conviction for for criminal tax evasion for about 15 counts against the Trump Organization and the Trump Payroll entity, which is a, a, a subsidiary, um, which they'll have to report on all of their future licensing applications, uh, bank loans, um, and anything else. For a long, long time, this is going to, ha- this this will, um, like a bankruptcy doesn't get cleared for a long, long time. Having a criminal charge against your company for tax evasion is a bad thing, not a good thing if you want to continue to operate your company.
5: Yeah, and look, this is different also than the civil lawsuit being brought by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, where they're seeking at least 250 million dollars in damages for the Trump organization and Donald Trump and his adult children engaging in fraudulent valuations of their property and there an independent monitor in connection with a preliminary injunction sought by the New York AG based on continuing fraud being committed by Trump and the Trump organization has now actually officially been appointed. It's retired judge Barbara Jones. It's ironic. It's the same judge who Trump <laughs> objected to in the special Master proceeding and got Raymond Deary. And, he and the same he and the
1: same judge we're going to talk about next in the Giuliani sixteen uh, electronic
5: devices, right? That reviewed all of his devices. A good segue there. Popak, <laughs> did you realize that you don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health? There is a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and and whole body wellness. That's why I love Nutrafol. It's the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. I'm not sure if you've been noticing it, Popak, but it looks a little thicker right now. Nutrafol's hair growth nutritionals go beyond genetics to multi-target the root cause of thinning, including stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, aging, and lifestyle through whole body health. It's physician-formulated using natural medical-grade ingredients and Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent, reliable results without compromising your sexual health. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months, Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than three thousand top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to nutrafol.com/slash. Men and entering the promo code, promo code legal AF to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere. It was negotiated directly by me and Popot, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus free shipping on every order, Popot, plus free shipping. Get $15 off at com slash men. This is how you spell it, everybody. Write it down. N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash Men, M-E-N, and then use the promo code legal A-F. And after you get it, share it with me. Shoot me a DM, tag us in a tweet, or tell me about it on a YouTube comment. I really love this product, and I'm pretty confident that you will also share my sentiments in loving this product. I'm very confident in fact. Popoc, lots of people are upset. They're saying, how could the Department of Justice not be prosecuting Rudy Giuliani for his foreign lobbying activities. They executed the search warrant. A special master was appointed, Barbara Jones. She was appointed. They went through all of these records. And after this whole process, the DOJ just sent a letter to the federal judge saying they're not gonna need the services of the special master anymore because they're going to decline to prosecute Giuliani. Um, I've seen a lot of messages very angry, very upset at Merrick Garland, and, you know, look, I, I, I'm not a, I I don't try to like, I'm, I'm not like a Garland, like, I love Garland for the sake of apologist. just saying, yeah. You know, yeah, I'm not a Garland apologist here, uh, but when you see Prosecutions like the Durham prosecution, which was so politically motivated, and Durham went 0 for two, um, and just embarrassing, career ruining. Um, and you see the methodical steps that the Garland, uh, that Garland DOJ is taking in contrast to Durham. And then you look recently at that foreign lobbying case, the FARA case, the foreign agent registration case with Tom Barrack. Um, where it was really tough, I think, for the jury to understand because the Trump organization, I mean, the Trump administration, which ran as the organization as a cartel, was kind of so corrupt that what was foreign lobbying and what was, you know, just activity that would normally occur by businesses that can have foreign relations, you know, with companies was a tough one for the jury to understand there. What do you think about this, Popak? I know people are really upset.
1: Yeah. Well let me let me start with the following. I don't think Merrick Garland is the one that pulled the plug on the prosecution. There's certain things that Maine Justice and the and the Department of Justice at that level um, get involved with, and there's certain ones that are just the individual U.S. attorney's offices. Damian Williams, who's the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, taking over in a long line of Southern District of New York prosecutors, all the way back to Rudy Giuliani, who ran that office back in the 80s and 90s. Damian Williams made the ultimate call. I don't think he got pressured by Merrick Garland at all. Um, Rudy Giuliani, despite his um, his imagination is not that level of person. He's not an elected official. He's not a person running for office. He's a, you know, over 70 now forcibly retired attorney um who runs around, you know, trying cases in his mind or on television. And so I don't think Merrick Garland got involved at all. I think Damian Williams looked at all of the evidence over the last um more than a year I mean, we talked about the raid. Well, it's uh, March. Yeah, we talked about the raid April of 2020, um, in which the the 16 mobile devices from uh, Marie Giuliani were picked up, laptops, iPads, um, telephones, and everything. They cracked all of those, either voluntarily or they were able to crack the codes. They got all of his, you know, unvarnished tech.